You're listening to a DM podcast. Hi everyone and welcome to the new series of Heroes and Howlers. It's me, Mikey Robbins, and my mate Paul Wilson. Hi everybody. Look, we're both still a couple of history tragics, but this season it's not just us doing the heavy lifting. That's right, Mikey. This season we've got special guests picking out their very own heroes. And howlers. <laughs> yeah, we're still on the lookout for those weird bits of history that have surreptitiously changed the course of mankind. And we're still uncovering the cock-ups, those moments of madness that have made the world what it is today. But now we've got backup. And together we We'll be turning history back to front and back again. G'day, Paul. G'day, Mikey. Welcome, everybody. Yeah, great to be in this new season with our new guests. You got another one today for us, Mikey. Yes, indeed. We're old mate of mine. Let's, let's be honest up front. Ian Rogerson. Yes. Thank you so much. Welcome aboard. <laughs> love you, men. See, that's what I love about Ian. It's our show, but he's welcoming us. <laughs> he's been on radio. Look, for those of you who, who know Ian's work, you know, Triple J TV, all that sort of stuff, he's, he's been around since... Like you bad, actually. <laughs> That's true. But at the moment, you're doing a, a podcast on this very network with Angela Coturns. That's right. It's called Suddenly Senior. Mm. And uh, as you can guess from the title, it's for people who suddenly realise that they're getting a little older, a bit rough around the edges. Oh, you've always been rough around the edges, yeah. mate. But see, here's the beauty about as we get older. We do put a bit. I'm, I'm the classic here. Paul's always been an historian. <laughs> but I've got that sort of, I hit my 40s and I became a history nerd. Yeah. And same with you. Mm. You're a bit of a history nerd. Well, we, I'm a history nerd, totally. I, I guess we're living history these days. But uh, <laughs> I, I, it's one of the most fascinating areas because it's when you – and I, with you guys' show, it actually – really exposes it. There's so much fascination in the way people used to lead their lives and what they did with them, and it, it's just a never-ending compendium of fabulousness. Oh, that's <laughs> the best description of that. So what we're doing with, with this show is we're doing a hero and a howl. Now, Ian has picked a hero. That's right. Well, if you're talking about fabulous, we're expecting a really good hero from you, Ian. Who have you got for us? Teddy Roosevelt. Theodore Roosevelt, also related to FDR. So we, I think before we get started, Paul... Let's look at the Roosevelt family. Okay, yes. Yeah. So the Roosevelts, or the Rosenvelts, as they were ah. first known, so they came across in the 17th century. And, of course, in those days, New York was New Amsterdam, right. owned by the Dutch. And these Dutch guys came in, and they, this their great-great-great-great-grandfather, he stole a nice big chunk of Manhattan, just about where Central Park is today. And that's where he turned it all into a bit of farmland. And then, of course, uh, over the centuries, they were able to negotiate the handover to the British. They've managed to stay in power. And in actual fact, you sort of split into these two sort of skions um, in the family. There's the Oyster Bay, yes. um, the Oyster Bay Roosevelt's, and then there's the Hyde Park Roosevelt's. Because the Oyster Bay, they're they are based on Long Island. Yes. And the uh, the Hyde Park, that's sort of up near the Potomac, very, very ritzy area. That's right. Well, they're both pretty rich, because you've got to remember that you know, just because the uh, the American War of Independence, just because they kicked the British out, didn't mean that you know, everyone suddenly was all particularly free as, as they pretend to be with this you know, sort of manifest destiny stuff. Yeah, we touched on it before, didn't yeah. we, Mike? In those other um, episodes, George Washington, yeah, one of the richest men and biggest slave owners in the world. Yeah, and of course, the Roosevelts themselves, they were very happy to become the new aristocracy, if you like. You know, and these big uh, families, these big dynasties that take over American politics. And you see, with that Oyster Bay side that you were talking about, Mikey, they were the Republicans. Mm -hmm. And the Hyde Park, they were very much the Democrat side of the family. Ah, right. But of course, you know, they don't really care who's in charge. Like the British system, it was very much taken in turns, your go, my go, as long as we all keep power. Teddy, he's from the Oyster Bay branch, mm. and as we mentioned, FDR's from the Hyde Park branch. Now, this is where it gets complicated, right? 
people say, how was how were FDR and Teddy related? Well, they were fifth cousins. Mm. But here's the other thing. Eleanor Roosevelt, who was a Roosevelt, is actually Teddy's niece. Yeah, she was right. a Roosevelt before she became a Roosevelt. That was the irony, wasn't it? Well, in fact, when they get married in 1905, Teddy is president at the time. And one of, one of the journalists asked him about a Roosevelt marrying a Roosevelt. And he, he replied, it's a good thing to keep the name in the family. <laughs> uh, so, so, yeah, so she was Teddy's niece because her father was Teddy's brother and he'd passed away when she was young. So Teddy actually gave her away to FDR in 1905. But I think one thing when we're talking names, we must point out he hated being called Teddy. It really, really got on his nerves because he is, as I'm sure Ian's going to tell us about, he's, he, he sees himself as, as quite an important man um, and he really thought it was quite belittling. I'm going to call him Theodore for today. <laughs> well, well I, I, I guess Teddy, though, was such a such an endearing term, but you could imagine someone He's built himself up like Theodore had from, you know, a sickly youth all the way through. This is a man who had a real ego and knew how to deal with it and and demanded and got respect from most of the people he came across. Well, actually, you mentioned the, the outdoorsman thing because that, that, that's really at the core of his psyche, being that sickly kid being sent out to the West where he, be, he becomes the outdoorsman. In fact... While I was researching this for you, Ian, mm. he, he kept that whole outdoorsman thing going all his life. In fact, he's probably the only US president to skinny dip. <laughs> right. <laughs> During his time in the White House, and by the way, he actually gave the White House that nickname. Ah. Teddy came up with the nickname the White House. During his time in the White House, he used to have a stirring hikes all around the woodlands, and at the end of his, his hike, mm. he'd strip off buck naked and swim in the Potomac <laughs> with, with his bodyguards sort of keeping people away. But you're, you're right, that whole thing about being an outdoorsman, which we'll, we'll get to later, mm. is also his major legacy in terms of what he did in terms of the environment. Yes, that's right. But I think we also, you know, you say he comes from these sort of hard beginnings. But yeah, he went to Harvard, he went to Columbia Law School yeah. as well. Yeah. And his dad used to take him hiking in the Alps. Mm. So he was he used to do a bit of the Grand Tour as well. So I think we must, must always remember that he's coming from a very, very wealthy family. But Ian, tell us, how do you see him getting first involved? What, what's the what's the breakthrough in your mind that really stands out for you, why you think he, he, he's starting to make a, an impact, as it were? Well, I think he's a man who, you know, and it goes back probably to his Dutch background, he had an amazing work ethic. Yeah. Uh, he was able to pull himself out of sickness, but also he propelled himself through the legislature of, of working in New York. He was the mayor of, for uh, New York. No, no, he's the governor. Governor of New York, sorry. Yeah, Very also, good. Also in charge of the board of police. Um, yeah, like he, yeah, with the family connections, he was, a, he was a big deal in New York before he even went to Washington. Mm. Yeah. So he propelled himself. He was a self-made man. And I, I like to think of him as really the, the first really modern American president because he, he, he was a, an eclectic man who had a lot of different ideas and drove them forward. And he was a capitalist, but at the same time, a little bit of a socialist. Just a little bit. Yeah. Actually, when you say like a modern American president, he was the first American president to travel overseas mm. while he was president. Right. Okay, it wasn't a big trip. He just caught a steamship called the Louisiana down to the Panama Canal, which is one of his pet projects. Yes. But he was the first president to leave America during his tenure. Right, well, I think, yeah, we're touching on this now. I want to get in. I'm going to play a little bit of devil's advocate today. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about the foreign policy ah, side right. of things, yeah. all right? Because, yeah, Panama Canal, yes, massive project and one of his, you know, real real ticks. I'll, I'll definitely give him that. But, you know, you talk about his 
um, his upbringing. You've got to remember, yeah, you've got the Spanish War, you've got the Rough Riders. Um, he was very keen on stealing um, Hawaii and stopping the, the Japanese getting in. He, he would have quite happily stayed in the Philippines, and the Philippines would still be a dependency yeah. of the Americans, uh, if you like. And then, of course, with the Sino-Russian War, he wanted to get involved. So he's in many, you talk about a modern president. And maybe he is very modern because yeah, I, I see him as the first president who really wants to go and interfere and mess, up, mess yeah. up the rest of the world. <laughs> Which, you know, sounds familiar. Yeah. Well, like, actually, you, you're dead right. He is the first American president to project American power beyond its borders. Mm. The Great White Fleet. See, while we're talking great Teddy phrases, I've got to bring this one up. Yeah, he's famous for, you know, when it comes to foreign policy mm. of speak softly and carry a big stick. Mm. Now, when he was asked about this, Teddy being Teddy said, well, I didn't make it up. It's actually an old West African proverb. Ah. It's not an old West African <laughs> proverb. He made it up, it looks like, but he, right. ga- he gave it that history. Authenticity. Yeah, to give, yeah. It, to give it some gravitas. You, you talk about his achievements, and I, I, get, I get your whole thing about, you know, on, on the international mm. stage. Let's not forget, some of the things he did domestically. Yes. A bit of background, because he first gets to the White House as vice president under McKinley. Now, then McKinley's assassinated by an anarchist called Leon Glosgs. That's right, yes. Nice That's pronunciation. Right. Which we did touch, Mikey did a nice episode, Ian, on the assassinations, um, and we talked about how someone does have a pop at Teddy later on, yeah, don't they? Yeah, yeah. Like Theodore. Um, and, yes, yeah, so he, there are a lot of assassinations, but, of course, that's how he gets his big break, isn't it? McKinley gets assassinated in 1901, and he automatically gets stepped up to become the president. And to this day, he's still the youngest person to... Become being president. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Even younger than Kennedy was years later. But you have to remember, like, he does win re-election in 1904, and mm. that's when his reform agenda actually kicks in, when you were talking about the little bit socialist stuff. Mm. In fact, here's a quote of his, which I really like. I am president of all the people of the United States without regard to creed, colour, birthplace, occupation, and social condition. My aim is to do equal justice among them all. Mm. Didn't quite live up to it. Mm. Wow. You get the Sherman Antitrust Act, you get the Hepburn Act, which sets freight rates, you got the Bureau of Corporations that took uh, took aim at unscrupulous monopolies. Also, too, he initiated 43 different lawsuits against big business. Mm. You've got the Pure Food and Drug Act and the Meat Inspection Act. Yeah. That's sexy. <laughs> <laughs> but, but actually, it was amongst the first of you know, consumer protection laws. We'll, we'll get to it later. But also, too, one of the things that he really wanted to look at was child labor laws. And that's really quite topical because you're looking at red states in America now that are mm. turning back child yeah. labor laws. Yeah, absolutely. And so, we, you know, obviously the second half of his career, which we will come on to, is that, that progressive side when, you know, he splits from... He, splits he starts from to the lose Republican. Republicans. Yeah, and, <laughs> and he almost split through the Republican Party, which, you know, maybe he should automatically should go straight in as a hero just for that. But is that, you talk about this sort of socialist side. Mm. Is, is there anything that sticks out to you that you were particularly impressed by? I, look, I thought it was interesting, is his idea of fairness. That, I think it was at the core of what he was about. You know, it was not only just in the legislature, and and the way he he implemented various laws in America. But also that fairness goes back to the way he used to treat his troops when he was with the Rough Riders. He would he would make sure all those people were looked after mm. and, and and made a point of actually getting the Rough Riders back out of Cuba 
to America because at one stage it looks like they were going to be marooned there mm, mm. and uh, spent his entire life looking after people, you know, that it had something to do with him. So this is a man who, who, you know, he's not a weasel. That's what I like about him. And what he also, and the reason I picked him as well yeah. too, it says so much about what America used to be and what it isn't really at the moment, as, you, mm. as you've right. touched on, Michael. Actually, but you, you, you were talking about how he split the Democrat Party because – America, when it comes to like you know, political parties, well, Paul, I can't help but notice you've got a map. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 you've listened to the podcast. You know, Paul loves his yeah, maps. Yeah, you yeah. might know that I like a map, Ian. So I brought one in, and it is absolutely remarkable. This is from the 1904 election, and yeah, I can just show it to you there. And amazing. It, is a, it's a, it is amazing because it's a straight line straight across America. Everything to the north is Roosevelt, is Republican, and everything to the south is Parker, you know, the guy who's up against, for the Democrats. So all those southern states were Democrats. All the northern states were Republican. So in those days, you really weren't talking about left-wing, right-wing politics. Mm. You were talking about, just like the Roosevelt family, you chose your side and you stuck with it, and you organized things around that. Now, of course, a lot of this is coming off the back of the American Civil War. Yeah, yeah there's still a legacy from that, the South and the Dixie Line. And basically, this Dixie Line is still there. You can see it in the election map of 1904. Uh, but it's also, it shows you that the Republicans can have a social side, if yeah. you like. I wouldn't go as far as socialist, but they can have a social side. And yeah, just as the Democrats are still quite happily, you know, flying the Confederate flag and probably would have quite happily kept some of the slaves on the plantation. So, you know, it, it's not the same sort of politics as you have today. Um, and it's certainly not the same idea of having a left-right Republican versus Democrat. And we did see that, didn't we, in the sort of 90s, 80s and 90s, when they talked about there were Democrats who would quite easily hold on to the right-wing vote. Mm. And mm. yeah, as there have been some Republicans who've gone a little bit leftwards. But we talked about the progressive side of his, and that, that when he does split the Republican Party after his protege takes over Taft. Yes. You know, and then he says, I'm going to leave because the Republicans are not progressive enough. And he actually forms his own party. Actually, mm. It's funny because you know, he and Taft were very, very close. And you mentioned him as a mentor. But then when he leaves, Taft tries to turn back some of his legislation. Taft is more conservative. Mm. And that's when he forms the Progressive Party, which becomes known as the Bull Moose Party. Yeah, the Bull Mooses, yeah. <laughs> and and, and that's, where he, that's when he actually talks about old age pensions, unemployment insurance, a graduated income tax and the child labour laws. Also, too, while he's part of the Bull Moose Party, he pushes women's suffrage. So that period, you're right, that sort of very small L liberal teddy does seem to be in control. Now, I, I mentioned Taft before because... It has been said, it needs to be said, he was the fattest US president of all time. <laughs> in fact, when uh, when he first moved to the White House, the story went around that he, uh, he got stuck in the bath. Mm. But the thing is, when he runs against Taft and Wilson, Wilson wins. That's right. But Roosevelt actually outpolls Taft. Right. He's, right. He, it's the it was an electoral college, wasn't it, that yeah, yeah. got him unstuck? Please, let's not go down okay. the, the rabbit hole of the American <laughs> electoral college. So it's now World War One, isn't it? You know, yeah. and, and so Woodrow Wilson has got in <laughs> originally on an anti-war ticket saying he's not going to get involved. And then suddenly, of course, he gets involved, like we touched on, on the yeah. episode with the old letter. Yeah, the, 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 the letter about uh, the Mexican invasion, of course, the seeking of the Lusitania. And Lusitania, yeah. exactly. So you can see there... And I think because Wilson wins and Roosevelt and the Republicans lose, when we talk about the legacy of Roosevelt, we often sort of show him up against Woodrow. And obviously, there's a lot, lot of Woodrow haters of, um, in the history books. Um, although he's 
being seen a little bit more to have a more of a balanced view. And I think Roosevelt's the same. He's, he was used to be held up as definitely one of the best. Um, mm. Now, maybe, you know, some of the Republicans there and some of the internationalists think that he, he poisoned their reputation for a long time. Actually, one of the people who was one of uh, Teddy Theodore's major detractors is the American writer Gore Vidal. Mm. And bizarre enough, Gore is part of that huge Roosevelt clan. Is he a relative? He is. Yes, they're all bloody relatives. <laughs> they are all related. Yeah, everybody thinks the Kennedys oh. were a, a dynasty, but really, when you yeah. think about it. As I was researching this, I'm, I'm starting to think that the, the American elite is almost as inbred as the British elite. Exactly. <laughs> well, that's, that's, that's be- that was really my point at the very beginning. Yeah, I think we should bear this in mind. He was very happy to ha- yeah, he inherited yeah, when his father died. Mm. Yeah, his, his inheritance was more than enough to retire and never work again. Yeah, he dropped out of Columbia Law School. He said, I intend to be one of the governing classes. Yeah, <laughs> so d- let's just take him a little bit with a pinch of shot. Yeah, if he'd been in Britain, he would have been a Tory. He would have been an old-fashioned um, establishment figure. So I think we sh- shouldn't forget that. But at the same time, we sh- do appreciate how he did nudge the Republican, and mm. versus, especially World War One versus Woodrow Wilson, he nudged the whole American people into a more outward-looking vent, as it were. And, of course, his, his greatest legacy, and it's one of the things you and I were talking about, yeah. him, is the environment. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the, he more than any other president beforehand, and, and surprisingly enough, there had been presidents beforehand who did set up um, national parks, but nothing like Teddy. And and I think that goes back to the years he'd spent sort of trying to get a, a cattle farm going and all that other stuff. He, he loved the idea of the cowboy. In fact, by the end of his presidency, and there's, there's some arguments over this, but it looks like it's somewhere between 194 and 230 million acres put, were put under federal protection. Right. And, of course, the big one was the Grand Canyon National Monument. Yes. Mm. That's one thing I really want to talk about before we leave Teddy. And it's where he sits in terms of American history. Mm-hmm. Now, you mentioned the Civil War before. This only surfaced in the 1950s. Someone found this photograph taken in 1865. Mm. It's a young, but seven or eight year old, Teddy Roosevelt, hanging out the window of his father's mansion, watching Lincoln's funeral procession go yes. past. Yes, yeah, wow. that's right. Yeah. And it's one of those things where you look at someone and you go, okay, this is a man with ramifications that exists till today. He's part mm-hmm. of the 20th century mm-hmm. political landscape. But yet he was alive at the time Lincoln dies. There's that pivot point there, which yes. when you were talking about before in, in terms of how he reshaped the Republican Party. Yes, that's right. I think, well, the World War One was such a pivot, wasn't it, for, yeah. for the Americans, it, turning from the inward to the outward. But they've been moving in that direction, really, when, oh, yeah. when you look at what Teddy had been doing. Certainly the Republicans had. Yeah, the mm. Republicans really had. And, uh, yeah, he even got went as far. It's quite interesting because he had a lot of illnesses as a child, but he was a real believer in the su- survival of the fittest. He's a real Darwinist, yeah. Mm. And he thought... That okay after the fir- after the First World War it was America's turn they were the powerhouse and, and they were going to dominate the globe just as the Brits had in the previous century so now he he saw there's nothing wrong with that my problem is that neither did George Bush yeah <laughs> and so yeah so you know trying to put a Republican in as a hero I was I was dead against you at the beginning here but you you're winning me over what do you reckon Mikey well look yeah there are those things domestically yes and you can see Teddy as the start of the Monroe Doctrine the Marshall Plan the whole American expansionism in the 20th century how is it that he's a fascinating character yeah we talk about this with Jefferson we talk about it with Washington we've talked about it with Lincoln like a lot of those huge figures in American politics complicated a complicated man yeah and he could have been just the wealthy kid 
who retired early. But instead, he just did so much and was such a go-ahead action man. Uh, I think that's what I like about Teddy Roosevelt. He, he captures something. He's he's a turning point. Well, I do like the fact that he does come back, you know, after the progressive, after the yeah. bull mooses. He comes back. He doesn't give up. He doesn't walk away. So, yeah, for that, I think, yeah, we'll, we'll get him in for determination. I'm glad I got over the line. Okay, folks, welcome back. And now it's time for Ian's Howler. But um, <laughs> this is one, actually, we've, we've touched on a little bit before. Mikey, you had that great episode on the birth of the nation. And you also talked about in Australia how the rise of fascism with the new guard and Eric Campbell. Yeah. But there was one name that we mentioned in that episode. Only briefly. Only briefly. Yeah, we didn't really get a proper handle on it. But fortunately, Ian is going to do that for us today <laughs> because we want to talk today about De Groot. Yeah, this is your, your Hall of Francis De Groot. It's a strange one, I know, but really, if you look at him, uh, he's a, a man who just has a moment. His real moment is on the Sydney Harbour Bridge, yeah. which yes. is the, the great symbol of Australia moving itself out of depression. Uh, you've got Jack Lang there who wanted to open the bridge and forget about the governor, don't worry about it, it'll be quicker and cheaper if he does it. And right out of the middle of nowhere, a guy dressed uh, in the uniform of the Hussars yes. that he'd, he'd fought with in WW1 comes screaming out of the, the crowd on a horse mm. and cuts the ribbon. Also, too, Ian, I think you might have another reason for mentioning the Groot. Your late great Uncle Keith. Now, mm. you and I had quite a few lunches with Uncle Keith. Absolutely. And Uncle Keith was, he was a bit of a man about town in Sydney in the 1930s. I remember him telling us a story about how he got involved. Not that he was a member mm. of the Razor Gang, mm. but he got involved. He saw a, a, a Razor Gang fight up the cross. That's right. He knew Tilly Devine and, and all those sorts of people and it was a, a hotbed Sydney around the 1920s and 30s. So and, did Uncle Keith know De Groot? No, I, I think he probably saw him. I wouldn't be surprised if Keith was actually there at the bridge opening. <laughs> uh, and most of Sydney, I think, was. Yeah. Three quarters of a million people were on the foreshore that day. That's right. But shockingly enough, and Keith, who lived to be over 100 years of age, mm. actually referred to people in a very nice Way and it very rarely would ever, you know, use a derogatory word about anybody. But when it came down to Francis de Groot, his line on him was an old Australian word that I think fits very nicely dickhead. <laughs> okay, let's give a bit of background for this dickhead. Yeah, well, I'm glad he said that actually. I'm gay. I didn't know your Uncle Keith, but I think it's a sort of guy that I would have enjoyed a beer with because. My big problem with De Groot, yeah. and, and we've mentioned this before with the new guard, Eric Campbell, there is this sort of cloak of respectability almost, yeah. um, or they're just being sort of airbrushed out as the good old Aussie larrikin, you know, with his horse and this is our... But these were horrible people. <laughs> these were yeah. Nazis. Yeah. This is fascism in disguise, you know, just as the NRA would fill the gaps, you know, when the KKK disappeared in America. So even in Australia, you know, there were a powerful, just as there were in Britain, there were powerful elements that were very happy to see fascism, if not thrive, then at least be given a platform. Actually, you, you, I'm glad you mentioned that because, yes, we had the New Guard, we had, we had another bunch of Victorian Australia, you had Mosley and the other fascists in England, you had a whole bunch of fascists in America. 
while I was researching for this episode, the only Western democracy that you know, we would look on as, as a country like ours that didn't have a, an organised fascist group was, God bless them, the Kiwis. They had a couple of right-wing nut jobs, but they, <laughs> but they never got organised. And they've got a few more now. But <laughs> Exactly. Here's the thing about the group. The group was actually born in Dublin in mm. 1888. He moved to Australia in 1910, and you're right. He, he, he served with the Hussars on the Western Front in WW1. Yes. In fact, he was described as an excellent disciplinarian ah. and a very determined officer with plenty of dash. And he was given, and here's the thing, his infamous ceremonial sword. The sword he later used on the bridge is presented to him while he's serving with the Hussars. Ah. And now there's some rumour too, that he was a very much an anti-communist. Yeah. He volunteered to fight with the Russians against the Bolsheviks. But that's why his big beef with Lang, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. He, he, wanted, he didn't want to have a socialist or communist opening the bridge. It should have been the king's representative. Mm. In fact, not just the king's representative. There was a rumour going around in New South Wales that George V was willing to get a boat out here to, to do the opening uh-huh. himself. Wow. And that Lang had said no. Now, this could be nonsense, but it, sure. was, it was one of the things the new guard kept saying say how, how left-wing Lang was. Yes. So getting back to De Groot, after the war, he marries a woman called Mary Elizabeth Byrne, Bessie, and they returned to Sydney in 1920. Mm. Now, I didn't know this. I mean, I heard he worked in furniture and he was an antiques dealer, but his business flourished. In fact, and let's not forget, the guy was always a well-known braggart. Right. In 1927, he claimed that his rushed Cutters Bay factory, just around the corner from yeah. where, where we're recording yeah. right now, employed some 200 men. And they were doing high-end reproduction antique furniture and fittings. In fact, how's this? They actually did the 1927 fit-out for David Jones's flagship store in the city. Mm. In fact, you can probably still go and see some of DeGroote's old wood mouldings <laughs> in there to this day. Now, look, you're right. Always conservative, and we mentioned Eric Campbell before. Mm. So he links up with the new guard in about 1931. Now, he quickly becomes a zone commander, part of the what's it called the Council of Action, <laughs> and a veteran of numerous street fights, both against unions and leftists. And you, you, you were talking before about the Klan. Yes. Quite often these new guard guys, they'd, uh, yeah, they'd wear a hood. Yes. Oh, and, they, they, you know, you mentioned zones. Yeah. They were all – they didn't necessarily all know each other. There were zone leaders who were sort of like a, a, a commando group mm. where they – so if one got taken down, the other one wouldn't be found out at the same time. So they were really getting prepared yes. to take over if they could. Yeah. And there's another – and this is a rumour, and I tried researching this, Paul. I'm, my source for this is the guy I was drinking with at the Golden Chief Hotel. <laughs> okay, in Double right. Bay. Pretty accurate. Now, the story goes that Double Bay in Sydney only has two pubs in it, the Golden Chief and the Royal. Yeah. And the story was that Double Bay was a hotbed of the New Guard and the Temperance League. Ah. And it was those two groups that kept pubs out of Double Bay. Pubs as, uh, rather than hotels, yeah. Yeah, yeah ex- exactly. Exactly. Now, let's get to the big day. So it's March 19th, 1932. Mm. The infuriated De Groot. Now, he's furious that Lang's having anything. So, so you're, you're right. He puts on his old Hussars mm. uniform. He borrows a mate's horse. And, and he, he rides forward and with, his, with his ceremonial sword and declared, this is the quote, in the name of decent and respectable people of New South Wales. And then he gets knocked off his horse and arrested. But here's the first thing that happens to him. He gets taken to Surrey Hills for psychiatric assessment. Oh, right. In they fact, thought he was mad. Yeah, in, yes. Yeah, yeah, they, <laughs> and fair enough. In fact, three psychiatrists give him a clean bill of health, ah. which really upset Lang. Right. Yeah, because he gets let off completely in the end, That's he? the thing, mate. He, he gets charged with 
damaging a two-pound ribbon. That's right. Uh, uh, <laughs> Having a sword, I think it... Well, well, in fact, all it gets done for is um, offensive behaviour in a public place. Right. Is fined five pounds. Five pounds, which is, you know, a reasonable amount in those days. And four pounds in cost. But here's mm. the thing. He later sues for wrongful arrest. <laughs> Something to do with his status as a Hussar officer, which he wasn't anymore. Anyway... They settle out of court, and his sword is returned to him. Plus 69 pounds. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 69, which is a windfall. He makes money out the whole game. Yes. But here's the thing, too. After the whole incident on the bridge, there are songs and poems, both written for and against what he stood for. And for quite a few years later, there was a bit of a rash of public nuisance makers doing what became known as a degroot <laughs> at public functions. Ah. So you see all, all these all these nuff-nuffs interrupting public functions doing the degroot. So in a way, Mikey, I, you know, you'd have to say he was like a prototype streaker, really. He was going to ruin it for everybody. Exactly. But what about the sword, Ian? Do you know what happened to the sword? Well, I believe it's in private hands very close to where it was used. In fact, there's quite a story about this because after the court case, he goes back to the furniture business and he does all right. Mm. In fact, he made a whole suite of furniture, including a ceremonial chair, for the Australian Governor-General, Sir Isaac Isaacs, in 1935. No so he's back in with the establishment. Oh, mate, exactly. He did the furnishing contract with the newly renovated New Australia Hotel, which opened in 1891 in Castle Ray Street and was considered to be Australia's premier hotel. Your Uncle Keith would have been there. He would have been there for <laughs> sure. Yeah, yeah exactly. It, it actually closed <laughs> out in 71. Look, he does a bit of stuff with the Army in the Second World War, but he gets put on the retired list. Then he goes back to Ireland in 1960. He dabbles mm. in antiques. He dies in 1969. But here's the thing. The sword. In 2004, his sword was found on a farm in County Wicklow, right, Ireland, right, and was returned to his nephew Frank, who put it up for auction. Now, there's a whole bunch of stuff like which Australian museum is going to buy it. It was actually bought by Paul Cave, the owner of the Bridge Climb Tourist Attraction, <laughs> yes. who, hold, who holds it to this day. Yeah, so I, I, I think he's a moment in time. So that's what... I think makes him a perfect howler. Mate, I think your Uncle Keith said it best. Absolutely. All right, folks, so there you go. Any questions, any comments, just drop us a line on all your social media, Twitter, Facebook, Insta, whichever you prefer. That's right, and always the same handle, at The Rest Is Hist. The Rest Is Hist, and you'll find all that in the show notes. And wherever you're listening, don't forget to like, subscribe, comment on whichever platform you happen to use. It's always good to get your feedback. Yes, keep it all coming. Lots of fun. And lots of maps. <laughs> and lots of new guests to look forward to. Paulie, we've got guests galore, each with their very own hero and howler.